The last three verses of 2 Corinthians 4 are among the most precious verses in all the New Testament, in my opinion, and that's why we're spending an entire week on each one of the verses. Last week we saw in verse 16 that we have two selves. We have an outer person and an inner person. And that the outer person is wasting away. But God, by his mercies, is renewing us in the inner person, day by day. And that's the person who has a fut- an eternal future. And the person more and more we're supposed to have as our identity. Today we move to verse 17. Which says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And let me read it again. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I'd like to begin by just focusing on this expression, light, momentary affliction. If you saw that, this verse, on a poster somewhere, it wouldn't shock you. You know, that Paul is saying, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. But, in fact, it is one of the most ironic statements you'll ever hear because for to hear Paul referring to his sufferings as light and momentary just in this epistle alone he describes his sufferings in very different language in verse 5 of chapter 1 He says, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. In chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, he says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And in chapter 11, 23 to 27, He lists some of the so-called light and momentary afflictions that he has experienced. Imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And now he says... These light and momentary afflictions are preparing us 
or preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That doesn't sound like light and momentary affliction, does it? It almost sounds like he's minimizing his experience to the point of dishonesty. And yet, that's what he says, inspired by the Holy Spirit. What is going on here? Well, as you can see in this verse, the reason that Paul is using this kind of language is because he is looking at his sufferings in comparison here to the weight of glory that is indeed promised and is coming to him and to those who are in Christ Jesus. And compared to that weight of glory, his trials and our trials seem minuscule. Our eternal weight of glory is far beyond all comparison. It is natural, I think, for our problems to seem big. You know, you, uh, you walk by some children playing or you hear them in the room. I want the red one. No, the red one's mine. You have the green one. And they are fit to be tied over who gets the red one and who gets the green one. <clears throat> they obviously think their problems are big. But even just from an adult perspective, it's obvious their problems are far from big. So it is a natural human thing to think of your problems as big. But how big they seem is a matter of perspective. Our struggles, no matter how intense they are, can't be compared to the glory which is coming to us in Christ. Even if our struggles were to grow so large that they could be compared on the same level as the Apostle Paul, they still would not be worthy of being compared to the weight of glory that is coming to those who are in Christ. One day, our perspective will change. One day, everybody's perspective will change. One day, our sufferings will actually seem light and momentary. But the beauty of it is that this can begin now. As we begin to come to grips with the promises of God, as we begin to recognize God's good and loving purpose for our lives, as God begins to open the eyes of our hearts to the hope to which he has called us and to the riches of, the, of his glorious inheritance in the saints, as he says, in, Paul says in Ephesians 1.18, then we begin to see our sufferings more and more in the context of our magnificent destiny and our true life. The life that has begun inside of us, 
Not just our outward life that is wasting away. God wants to help us to live in light of what we know will be our ultimate perspective. He wants us to live today in light of the fact that one day we're going to look at our problems and see that they were light and momentary. Compared to the grace of the Lord Jesus, compared to the glory to come, our afflictions are indeed light and momentary. And when we feel sorry for ourselves, and all of us sometimes feel sorry for ourselves, it's never, it's never because our circumstances are bad. It's always because we've lost perspective. We need to remember that when we feel sorry for ourselves. It's not because of our circumstances that we're feeling that way. It's because we've lost perspective. God wants us to help us be impressed Not by our troubles, but by his abundant supply for us in Christ. And the abundant future that awaits us. I think Stephen is a wonderful example of this. One of my favorite Bible stories is when there's, you know, persecution arises because Stephen is proclaiming the gospel with such power. And they just can't stand it. And so they start they stone Stephen. And here they're, they've, they're hurdling stones at Stephen with the idea of killing him. And this wasn't just, you know, uh, insignificant things to show their disapproval. It ended in his death. It killed him. And that's what the intention was. They are assaulting him. In a, in a way that will bring his life to an end. And yet in the midst of it, Stephen's not even seemingly paying attention to the stones. His eyes are fixed on Jesus in heaven. For he looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God in heaven. And his joy in that vision is so powerful, it's like he doesn't even notice that they're stoning him. I think that gives us a glimpse, just a glimpse of what we're talking about here. That we can see what is coming. And we can see Christ in heaven in such a way that that, that it's not that we're we're... We have to be distracted. The the, the thing that grips our attention is Him. We have to try to pay attention to Christ. We're gripped with Christ. The second thing I'd like to point out in the passage is this expression, beyond all comparison. Beyond all comparison. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now typically we like to put things in charts or graphs to show how they compare with one another. But some things don't belong on the same chart or the same graph. 
the differences between some things is so great that you can't quantify how, how different they are. They are beyond all comparison. I have a problem. My hair is very thin. I don't mean that there's not much of it, although that's true too. But it's ver- the nature of it. Whenever I go to a barber, they say, oh, you have like baby's hair. Oh, thank you. Anyway, um, <laughs> the problem is that when I'm in the car, every time I open the window, even just to get the mail, the wind just does this to my hair, you know? And, and so a lot of times I will arrive somewhere not even knowing that through some little opening of the window, my hair is everywhere. So that's my problem. I just finished a book that my daughter Michelle uh, recommended to me about some guys who also had a problem. They were shipwrecked on the coast of West Africa and they had to become slaves of the local Bedouins just to survive. They almost died many times and they were abused by their masters. There was hardly anything to eat or drink. They literally were dying of starvation and thirst for the better part of the time that they had there, which was almost a year. They drank camel's urine to keep themselves hydrated to some extent. They ate camel bones that they crushed into powder and ate so that they would have something to eat. One of them weighed 250 pounds when he was shipwrecked and when he was rescued he weighed 90 pounds. The captain. And in his memoirs he says, I'm hesitant to write this because I know people won't believe me. But two of the men, when they were rescued, weighed 40 pounds each. So I have a problem. They had a problem. But it's offensive to us even to use the same language of problem to talk about those two things, isn't it? Like, how dare you say you have a problem and say they have a problem in the same breath, as if those two things are comparable. Some things can't be compared. Some things are beyond comparison. It's not just that the glory of heaven is greater than the sufferings of earth. That's not what this is saying. It's not just that they're twice as great or ten times as great or a thousand times as great. It's that they are so much better that they're not worthy of being compared. They're beyond all comparison. They don't belong on the same chart with the same graph. If I ask you, well, you know, how, how many times bigger do you think the problem that these men had than my problem? You'd say, well, you can't quantify that. 
you know, even if I said, oh, okay, well, their problem's a million times bigger, that's still an insult to what they experienced. They're not worthy of being compared. And the fact is that our afflictions are preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And notice here the two levels of contrast that Paul is using. He says, he refers to our afflictions and his afflictions as light in comparison to the weight of glory. So one is light and one is heavy. And then secondly, he says, our trials are momentary and our, the weight of glory is an eternal weight of glory. So they're different in terms of their degree and they're different in terms of their duration. One is momentary. It lasts but a short time. The other is eternal. Something to be enjoyed forever. Let's ask a theological question. If God is a just God, and he is... How can our future glory be so incomparable to our earthly experience? It, it, could it be that we are so good and so worthy of God's reward that he pours out this amazingly abundant reward upon us? No, no, no. The fact is... The reward that we enjoy, that he's talking about, this eternal weight of glory that can't be compared, this is not justice. This is grace. Our reward is not based on what we did, you see. It's based on what Jesus did. And the perfection and the righteousness and the love and the sacrifice that he performed is what the immense award is a response to. And we get to enjoy it because we are in him. Because the inheritance that he has, he bestows upon us by grace. That's why the reward far outweighs our afflictions. Now the last thing, or the, the final part of the verse that I'd like to focus on is how it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That our trials produce or prepare for us glory. Now I want, first of all, to point out that to, so that we understand what Paul is saying here, that there's an easy way to misunderstand this. This doesn't say that the afflictions are preparing us for the glory. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say now. Certainly, it's true 
that our afflictions are preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He says our afflictions are preparing for us, not us for, but for us, an eternal weight of glory. In other words, it is our afflictions somehow which are actually producing the glory, which are actually making the glory possible for us. Another translation puts it, uses the word produces instead of the word prepares us or for us. You see, our lives and sufferings in the economy of God somehow are producing future glory for us. Now this may seem contrary to our instinct but it's a clear teaching of, Bible, of the Bible. Affliction produces glory for the believer. Now Paul does not mean, and this may be obvious, but I think it needs to be said. Paul does not mean that affliction in and of itself produces glory. Or else salvation is by affliction. Rather, it is affliction endured in faith which produces glory. When a person responds to affliction by growing bitter, by hating God for letting me go through this, I'm not sure that produces any glory at all. I don't think it does. But when one of God's people puts his trust in God in the midst of afflictions when he makes him when he makes God to be his rest and his strength when he trusts the Lord and trusts the Lord's will to be better than his own will then affliction produces glory Faithful endurance of earthly afflictions, I think, somehow actually increases our ability to enjoy the glory of God in heaven. That's what Jonathan Edwards thought anyway. It's somewhat speculative because I don't know that the Bible clearly defines how this is true. But he believed that we, it's not that there's more reward in heaven for some than for others, but that through faithful enduring of affliction, we ourselves are prepared better to appreciate and enjoy the glory of what we experience in heaven. So Paul says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You know, if we really believed that our afflictions were preparing glory for us, it seems to me that we would not resent them. Problem is that we're just thinking about how they feel at the moment and how they're going to affect 
the recent, the near future, the next few days, the next few weeks, instead of our eternity. For me, I'm so much better at trusting God when everything seems to be going well. But when things appear to be falling apart, sometimes it seems my faith is falling apart too. But the thing that's helped me to stabilize, the thing that's helped me to not be just subject to the waves that come up and down and up and down, is that I have, over the last few years, been anchoring myself in the Word of God on a daily basis. where I spend time in His Word every day and feed upon His his, uh, Word, drinking the living water of His promises. And um, that, I find, has been a tremendously stabilizing effect on my emotional reactions to the things in my life that happen to me. You see, I need constant reminders... I need to be reminded of the reason God allows us to experience troubles and of the fact that I'm not unique, that all God's people suffer afflictions and that he disciplines those whom he loves. He's not out to get us, but he's out to bless us. I need to be reminded that the reason God allows us to experience troubles is because our troubles are producing for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this is how we can do what Paul says in Colossians 3.2 where he commands his people, set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. It's through His Word that I can do that. Where I'm reminded constantly of what He's up to and what He has in store for us. Even this week, I am coming to the end of Isaiah, which I've been in for over three years now. And uh, um, I'm in chapter 66. I think I have about a week left. And uh, boy, what precious verses. Every week that I read about what God has in store for his people. And today's verse is a wonderful illustration of what I'm talking about. Calling us to set our minds on the eternal weight of glory which awaits us instead of fixing our minds on the temporary trials that we're experiencing here and now. I have friends. Four couples Good friends, all formerly a part of GPC, who have lost a grown child in the last year or two. How do you face something like that? Only by knowing that the comfort of God is ultimately far greater than earthly heartbreaks. Only by knowing that our Lord's grace is deeper, far deeper, 
than the deepest wound which can ever be experienced on earth. Only by knowing that the troubles of this world are but for a moment, while the comfort of God is for eternity. Now I'm going to uh, add one little thing to this sermon um, because sadly uh, that doesn't really flow at all with what we've been talking about. But sadly this beautiful truth and this beautiful verse even they have been and can be used for a very ugly evil purpose. And as all Christian, all Christian truth can be used to try to manipulate people and make them compliant so that we can do what we want. Sadly, oppressors have used this verse and this truth to deflect objections to their oppression. And almost as guilty are those who themselves don't oppress but have the power to stop the oppression and don't. This occurred rather frequently during the days of American slavery when slave owners would use truths like this to try to keep their slaves in, in line, tried to keep them from their silence, their protests. Sadly, in my lifetime, I've, I've ex- witnessed a number of cases of this in marriages where instead of a husband and wife, there's an oppressor and an oppressee. And in a similar way, these truths are used to control, to manipulate, to silence, to uh, cause fear instead of to uh, edify and build up. Now, the problem, another problem exists in that some people, because of this misuse of these truths, come to be suspicious of the truths themselves. Because Bible truth is misused doesn't mean that the truth of it is taken away. It's still a glorious truth for us. But there must be a special place in hell for those who oppress and abuse others and then use the Bible to deflect their victims' protests. An oppressor doesn't need to worry about teaching the Bible to his victims. He needs to worry about repenting of his oppressing and release his victim and correct his wicked ways. I hate to end such a glorious um, truth with such a, a negative um, statement and reminder 
Um, but unfortunately, in our day, there is uh, there are many who have experienced the Word of God in a very negative way, in an abusive way. And I think it's important that we recognize that. And I think even as we're glorying in the truth of God, we need to have some fear and trembling about ever getting anywhere close to misusing it for our own advantage. And not giving it, using it in love, but in self-service. Now let us come to the table of our Lord. Let us remind ourselves that this is something that Christ told us to do, told all of his people to do. And so we're doing it not because we think it's cool, but because we want to be obedient. But we recognize also that he is wiser than we are. He knows what is good for us. And he didn't command it for no reason. He commanded it because we need it. Just like we need daily food, so we need the bread of life. Let us come to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we give praise to you for your wondrous love for your marvelous promise which upon which we build our hope we thank you dear lord for the obedience that you performed on the cross even though something inside of you was reluctant Yet, O Lord, you yielded to the Father's will and willingly gave yourself for our welfare, for our salvation. And dear Lord, in gratitude we want to come to you this morning and receive this precious gift. But as we do, we also, Lord, ask that you would help us to have the same spirit as we face the difficulties of our lives. That we would be willing to yield to your will instead of clinging to our own will. That we would be willing to trust you, that you know what's best. Instead of taking ourselves and our perspective and our opinion so very seriously of what is best. Feed us now, O Lord, and fill us with the one who came down from heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.